Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here. Thanks for coming back for more of the CHP Nanjing Massacre Part 2. This event is also known as the Rape of Nanking. I use the two terms interchangeably. Same with Nanking and Nanjing. I'm sure you figured that out. We left off last episode on December 12, 1937. Japan's long march of aggression in China going back to 1931 was now reaching a crescendo. Thanks to the Marco Polo Bridge incident, 7737, they were able to extend their reach from Manchuria, or Manchukuo as they printed it on their postage stamps, and from that base, they later went on to seize the key cities of North China, most importantly Beijing and Tianjin. Then we saw how Chiang Kai-shek took the fight to the Japanese down in Shanghai, and needless to say, the... NRA did not prevail in that conflict, but Japan's expected knockout of China's military early in the first round ended up dragging on for much longer than Japan expected, and that was the key point about the Battle of Shanghai. Now it was over, and three Japanese armies had marched on Nanjing and had the place surrounded. Nationalist General Tang Shengzhi made a reluctant getaway, but not before giving the order to raise Nanjing. The capital was put to the torch, and between the fires that raged throughout the city, the fury of the battle in progress, and the bombing, Nanjing burned for weeks. The nationalist government may have fled upriver and abandoned the capital, but that didn't mean they wanted to hand it over to the Japanese all in one piece. This was now the second time in 73 years since the Taiping Rebellion came to an end that Nanjing burned to the ground. Soldiers tried to flee, but there were no easy escape routes left. There was really only one way out if the Yangtze wasn't an option. The evening of December 12, 1937, was not a pleasant evening to be cruising on that river. Most died trying to escape, and everyone who fled Nanjing that night of December 12th, with the city and flames behind them, the terrible sounds of battle, desperation in every direction. I'm sure no one who survived that night ever forgot it. 70,000 Chinese soldiers died in the brief defense of the city. This was one of the darkest nights in Chinese history, even going back to the time of the ancients. Then on the morning of December 13, 1937, the Japanese army entered the city, about 50,000 of them. A lot of times you'll see the date of December 13, 1937 as the date of the Nanjing Massacre. Unfortunately for the residents of Nanjing, it didn't all happen in one day. The worst of the atrocities were carried out over six or seven weeks into the cold month of January. 1938. Who pulled the trigger to allow for what happened? It's hard to say. Most of what I read points a finger at Prince Asaka Yasuhiko, uncle to the emperor. The decision was made to take no prisoners. Japanese didn't want to deal with the hassle of processing, housing, and feeding this many soldiers, let alone the disgust they may have felt that the Chinese had opted to surrender en masse rather than go down fighting. This went completely against everything that had been drilled into them since they were little boys back in Japan. No surrender. Fight to the end. So who green-lighted the Nanjing Massacre? We don't know for sure. It's no wonder this part is still cloudy after eight decades. What followed was so horrific that it had to be covered up, and every effort taken to obscure this chapter of Japan's history. That's how bad it was. In wartime, terrible things happen. In 2017, it's happening still with the crudest and most sophisticated weapons humankind can devise. But there's war, and then there's this. What happened in Nanjing from mid-December 1937 to about the end of January 1938. Was this all really necessary to do these things? The order from on high called for, quote, all prisoners of war to be executed. Method of execution? Divide the prisoners into groups of a dozen. 
shoot to kill separately in groups of 50, end quote. It was a very impromptu liquidation of human life. Japanese soldiers had written in their diaries that so many soldiers offered almost no resistance. Once they had their hands tied and they were bound together in these groups, their ability to resist was hampered. And that's how a lot of them met their end, tied up, shot. And because fuel was scarce in the cold December winter, the dead weren't cremated. Bodies were just dumped in the Yangtze or in mass graves until they couldn't dig them fast enough. The Japanese weren't going to just look the other way and let these surrendered Chinese soldiers get away and live to fight another day. That's basic military science 101. There were half a million people holed up in Nanjing. The Japanese army went after anyone who might fit the bill of an NRA soldier. This meant all males from the age of 13 to 60 years old were fair game. And the Japanese were smart, too. They could tell. They'd look at a man's hands, what scars he had. They knew. And when they guessed wrong, too bad. Nothing could be left to chance. As the day unfolded, people were horrified to see, at once, complete indiscriminate killing, firing into crowds. People were running and screaming and trying like crazy to get out of harm's way. And once people evacuated the streets and public places, Japanese then started going from house to house. And at once, no ramp-up period or slow lead-up, from the moment they entered the city, all the terrible, vile things that henceforth became the calling card of the Japanese military became known to the Chinese inhabitants of Nanjing. The immediate objective of the Japanese army was to break the civilian resistance ASAP. This prioritized the urgent matter of identifying and killing all the Chinese soldiers, those who had surrendered and those who had been rounded up. They were shot on the spot or later on. Let me quote uh, Iris Zhang. Quote, In the war crimes transcripts and Chinese government documentation, story after story of what happened next begins to sound, even in all its horrific dimensions, almost monotonous. With few variations, the story goes something like this. The Japanese would take any men they found as prisoners, neglect to give them food or water for days, but promise them food and work. After days of such treatment, the Japanese would bind the wrists of their victims securely with wire or rope and herd them out to some isolated area. The men, too tired or dehydrated to rebel, went out eagerly, thinking they would be fed. By the time they saw the machine guns or bloodied swords and bayonets wielded by waiting soldiers, or the massive graves heaped and reeking with the bodies of the men who had preceded them, it was already too late to escape. End quote. And those who carried out this duty had reason to make haste. Matsui Iwane had recovered sufficiently enough from his bout of TB to announce that he would make his official grand entrance into the city on December 17th. Well, for obvious reasons, Matsui's entrance was going to be a serious Kodak moment for the Japanese propagandists, so they had to make sure the place was sufficiently spiffed up enough for the folks back home. The Japanese commanding officer riding into the conquered Chinese capital? <laughs> the photographer better not forget to take his lens cap off for that shot. So to facilitate this... The soldiers had to round up, murder, and dispose of tens of thousands of dead soldiers. Just get them totally out of sight and clean the place up in time for this deadline. Matsui was immediately outraged upon finding out the extent of the atrocities carried out so far. He gave his officers a serious dressing down for their lack of discipline. He had a fairly good idea that if this all got out, which it surely would... This was going to come back to haunt everybody involved. The big moment came, December 17, 1937. It was immortalized in black and white. I don't know how many lives had to be expeditiously snuffed out to get everything looking just right. 
But the crowds back in Japan got to see how wonderful the whole effort was going in China. It seemed clear, well, from the cheering crowds of Chinese, waving Japanese flags, that the citizenry was glad they were there. The reality, however, was seven weeks of random shootings, live burials, disembowelment, mutilations, decapitation, sexual assault of the most violent and depraved kind, civilians used for bayonet practice, killing contests, mass incinerations, forced hypothermia, being set upon by attack dogs, all for amusement. It wasn't really necessary, well, for the Japanese war effort, that is. If the Nanjing Massacre is the marquee event of these 14 years of Japanese aggression in China, the marquee moment of the Nanjing Massacre might be the grainy black-and-white films and photographs of Chinese babies being thrown into the air and spared by bayonets. I remember back in the 1980s, before I moved to Hong Kong, I think it was, there was some Chinese-produced documentary on the Nanjing Massacre. I couldn't recall the name. But I vividly recall the illustrations for the movie posters at the theater in Monterey Park that showed that one gruesome atrocity. I remember looking at that illustration of the, of the baby impaled by the Japanese bayonet and thinking, oh, that can't be true. During those weeks, the worst carnage and depravity was inflicted on innocent civilians. So terrible were these events and the eyewitness testimonies of the survivors about what happened. There are many who believe after that there could never be friendship between China and Japan again. That's how bad it was. 2,000 years of friendship and good relations. Like that. So with everything that had happened since the Izumo debacle, Black Saturday, as it became known, August 14th, stretching to these opening weeks of the Japanese occupation of Nanjing, beginning December 13th, four months almost to the day, word of the cruelty of the Japanese army spread far and wide. People heard stories about the bombing and how terrifying it was, and also what happened if they got their hands on you. The stories of cruelty, one more horrible than the next, galvanized the nation in their determination to resist. But at the same time, people knew to stay as far away from them as possible. And if you saw the Japanese army approaching your town or village, run. For women, young and old, the horrors are all well-known, well-documented, and duly added to the sad record of inhuman behavior going back to the beginning of recorded history. Rape and every imaginable sexually depraved act were routinely inflicted upon women. Every female during the worst of times, December 1937, January 1938, had to either seek refuge in the safety zone and hope for the best, or become a, a, a kind of an Anne Frank and just remain out of sight, hidden away until the, the nightmare ended. Iris Zhang said anywhere from 20,000 to 80,000 rapes were carried out in Nanjing during these six weeks of horror, from the moment Nanjing was taken until the end came for Japan and China. It was one long, drawn-out nightmare of the worst intimidation imaginable. The safety zone... Let's talk about that and introduce John Rabe and a few of these saintly foreigners, I call them, who elected to stay behind and try to see if they could make a difference. The Nanjing Safety Zone was this area, about two, two and a half square miles. The address was at 5 Ninghai Road. That's where Nanjing University and Jinling Women's College is today, and back then, too. After Shanghai had been destroyed and completely put out of business. The residents and refugees of Nanjing knew they were up next. And at Nanjing's most desperate hour, a few everyday people stepped up and assumed control. Iris Zhang, in her research for her book, came upon these undiscovered diaries that John Rabe had kept during the entirety of the Nanjing massacre and leading up to it. 
He was 55 at the time, a German originally from Hamburg who worked for Siemens, the largest electronic equipment maker in Europe, and they do a thousand other things as well. $80 billion company or thereabouts. John Rabe was their guy in Nanjing. He ran the Siemens office there. He had moved to China in 1908, working in the Siemens Beijing office, and in 1931 ended up in Nanjing. Back then, every company who had a product to sell was trying to drum up business in China, where plenty of fat contracts were to be had. So Rabe managed the Siemens operation, selling mostly telephones and electronic equipment. He's called many things. The living Buddha of Nanjing, Iris Zhang called him the Oscar Schindler of China. Rabe was also the representative in Nanjing for the German Nazi party. He was a pillar of the German community in Nanjing. When asked why he stayed behind, he said it was out of a feeling of obligation he had to the Siemens employees who worked under him, many for a long time. He knew trouble was coming, but he naively thought... However bad it was, eh, he'd help his people get through it. During the Battle of Shanghai, there had been this uh, French priest who had organized a kind of zone within the city where certain non-combatants caught in the crossfire could seek refuge, and the Japanese, for whatever reason, left them alone. Several of the remaining foreigners in Nanjing discussed organizing a similar Nanjing safety zone. So this is what they did, and they formed an international committee, and they at once went to work. On November 25th, after the bombing sorties over Nanjing had been pounding the city, Rabe had written to Hitler and requested his help in putting a leash on the Japanese and keeping them out of the zone area that was in the process of being organized. Well, Rabe never got a response from de Fuhrer, but he noticed that immediately afterwards, less bombs hit the safety zone than previously. The Nanjing safety zone was rimmed with white flags, and though the immediate objective was the safety of Siemens employees and students and staff from the universities and hospitals, word got out that when the Japanese army entered Nanjing, the safety zone was the place to be. Rabe was head of this international committee. And even before the fall of Nanjing, before the Chinese military had fled, Rabe became a kind of, you know, unofficial mayor of the city. Everyone was gone. The whole municipal and national government, administration, law enforcement, they hit the road. Now these several foreigners were it. Rabe never went anywhere without his swastika armband. As a German, and as a representative of the Nazi party, he carried a modicum of authority. Not much, however. Germany and Japan had already signed the November 1936 anti Pact, so they were in bed together by this time. So Rabe was hoping, out of respect for this alliance, the Japanese would allow this small Nanjing safety zone area to exist, and they would carry out their fighting and violence outside the perimeter of the zone. The Japanese weren't having any of this. They gave no cooperation at first. The way they saw it, if they declared this zone a safe haven, it would fill up with escaping soldiers and other anti-Japanese elements. Well, Rabe knew they weren't wrong about that. Soldiers and terrorists hiding among civilians was a trick going back to ancient times. Still alive and well in our day, too. Works great. So in between trying to work out a deal with the Japanese authorities, Rabe and the committee had to tend to as many as a quarter million Chinese refugees squeezed into this ghetto. The more people poured into the zone, the quicker the place turned into a bona fide humanitarian crisis, not to mention one big open latrine filled with hungry, starving, and desperate people. And the several foreigners who comprised the International Committee for the Nanjing Safety Zone acted as the, the, the central services for everyone. These people, a businessman, a doctor, and two teachers, all citizens of neutral countries in 1937-38, were the only authorities left standing in between the huddled Chinese masses in the safety zone 
and the Japanese military. The funny thing was, well, not funny, but interesting no less, was that Rabe, being a Nazi and always walking around with a swastika armband, had some kind of an effect on the Japanese. The truth is, they never respected the safety zone as an off-limits kind of place. The Japanese went in whenever they felt like it. But time and again, whenever Rabe would wave his swastika at them like a lucky charm, the belligerent Japanese soldiers backed off most of the time. More lives got saved from Rabe's swastika than you could imagine. But Rabe couldn't be everywhere all the time. Every single day there were hapless victims who got caught up being in the wrong place at the wrong time and would become a source of sick entertainment for the Japanese before they killed them. Before the onslaught, Tang Shengzhi had soldiers all over the safety zone, but Rabe had convinced Tang, for the sake of the innocent civilians, to please get all the soldiers out. So this was done, and for the most part, prior to Japan entering the city, the zone had been cleaned out. So Rabe felt that with the zone completely devoid of a Chinese military presence, the Japanese would leave him alone. I mentioned last episode General Tang was looking for a truce because Chiang Kai-shek ordered him to fight on. Tang had approached the International Committee to act as an intermediary to try and work out a truce with the Japanese. To no avail, though. So Tang tried to get Rabe to negotiate with the Japanese military on his behalf. But, well, as I said, Japan wanted a white flag or they wanted nothing. On the morning of December 13th, after the fall of the city and after the Japanese started entering Nanjing, Rabe went for a bit of a walkabout to assess the damage. He ran into terrified Chinese NRA soldiers who begged him to shelter them in the zone. Rabe's humanitarianism wouldn't allow himself to deny these men, so he, he let them into the Nanjing safety zone. It wasn't just a few soldiers. There were a lot who tried to sneak inside and rid themselves of their uniforms and you know, tried to blend in. Naively, Rabe had gone to the Japanese authorities and informed them that he was harboring these soldiers and that he could vouch for them. They had quit the army and were now just plain old civilians and the Japanese had nothing to fear. I don't know what Rabe was expecting, but well, before he knew it, Japanese soldiers were all over the zone, hunting these soldiers down. And they killed every last one of them. And of course, many others who got caught up in the dragnet. Rabe protested regularly to the Japanese authorities. He dealt with middlemen, the administrative hacks who ran things in the city, not the military men. The military called all the shots, and Rabe had to rely on these intermediaries to advocate on his behalf. Rabe always had to stick close to the safety zone. A common thing to do for many Japanese soldiers was to sneak into the zone like a wolf and search out some prey. If they could find any girls or women out in the open or if they entered buildings and found them hiding, it always turned into a worst-case scenario for the victims. Sometimes Rabe would be called to the scene early enough to prevent violence being committed. He'd start wailing and point to his swastika, and you know, sometimes he came too late. And though he couldn't save everyone, his very presence and some harsh words usually was enough to defuse the situation. Rabe may have been German, but he was still a Westerner, and he suffered plenty of abuse from the Japanese. But compared to the Americans and others, he was fairly well treated. Pearl Harbor was still a long way off, but at this hour, there was no love lost between the Empire of Japan and the United States. So Rabe always stuck close to the safety zone. Whenever he would leave to go pay a visit to the Japanese authorities or whatever, in came the wolves looking to prey on any stray lambs they could find. After a while, it got to the point where Rabe would never leave the area. He knew what would happen if he did. American doctor Robert O. Wilson, another one of the angels of Nanjing who stayed behind with Rabe, he was, he was 33 at the time of the massacre. He was the child of Methodist missionaries who had carried out their work in Nanjing. Wilson had received a B.A. from Princeton and got his medical degree from Harvard and returned to Nanjing in 1936 and became a surgeon 
at the Nanjing University Hospital. In August of 1937, when things went from desperate to a full-blown crisis, Wilson sent his family back home, and he stayed behind, like Rabe, his Christian beliefs and humanitarian values prevented him from abandoning the people of Nanjing at such a time. Others didn't feel that way, but by the time of the fall of Nanjing on December 13th, Robert Wilson was the only surgeon left in the city to deal with the traumas meted out on the populace. Though he wasn't a battlefield medic, he may as well have been. So horrific were the injuries he attended to all day and all night. Wilson had said of John Rabe, quote, He is well up in Nazi circles, and after coming into such close contact with him, as we have for the past few weeks, and discovering what a splendid man he is and what a tremendous heart he has, it is hard to reconcile his personality with his adulation of de End quote. Wilson and the small handful of nurses working with him had to handle everything, including the aftermath of the fun and games the Japanese had torturing the populace and captured Chinese soldiers. Like Rabe, Robert Wilson left behind an exhaustive diary that noted down all the blood and terror he witnessed. There was also Minnie Vautrin. The people referred to her as the living goddess of Nanjing. There were others, of course, but a lot has been written of John Rabe, Robert Wilson, and Minnie Vautrin. All three kept very detailed diaries that survived them. So there's a very decent account of the rape of Nanking from these three eyewitnesses. Minnie Vautrin was the dean of studies and during the massacre acting principal of Jinling Women's College. Jinling was the ancient name of Nanjing going back to the Zhou dynasty. Being a women's college and all, you can almost imagine how the Japanese soldiers viewed that place. Under Minnie Vautrin's care, were around 10,000 women, and she guarded them with her life. And like Rabe, she too had to step in often to come to the rescue of some hapless person being assaulted by soldiers. She was disrespected and abused by the Japanese for getting in between their fun and those who she harbored and felt personal responsibility for. Rabe had written in his diary, quote, Miss Minnie Vautrin, our American Minnie, a proper lady to the core. I really don't know quite rightly who she is. It would appear that she's a teacher who's now in charge of Jinling Girls College. I have seen her with my own eyes, leading a procession of 400 female refugees through the zone on their way to her college camp. And now the Japanese authorities have come up with the fabulous idea of erecting a military bordello. And with hands clenched in horror... Minnie is forced to watch as authorized underlings force their way into her girls' assembly hall filled with hundreds of virgin girls. She is not going to hand over even one of them willingly. End quote. So bad had the matter of assault and rape on women become, and so great was the outrage and protests made to the Japanese authorities, those in charge in the military felt it was a pretty halfway decent idea to design and implement the whole notion of comfort women. That is, to institutionalize the rape of women. This was on December 24th, 1937, that this idea was proffered to the International Committee. They received nothing but the highest assurances from the Japanese that if only there was a place set aside for the soldiers to do what came natural... It would finally put an end to what was happening on the streets and homes of Nanjing. And then everyone could stop their complaining. And like Rabe had written in his diary, what better place was there to seed this new military brothel than Jinling College? Like a mother hen protecting her chicks, Minnie Vautrin didn't want any part of this and used every ounce of her force of will to prevent this from happening. But she was... She was an ant fighting an elephant. You can only go so far without any weapons at your disposal. Twenty-one women, however, bravely stepped forward. It was said they were all prostitutes before the war, and though they knew what they were getting themselves into, they volunteered anyway. History didn't record their names, but their bravery was no less than any other soldier who faced down an unstoppable enemy. So this is how the idea of 
comfort women began, and 80,000 to as many as 200,000 women suffered this terrible fate. Lucy Hornby, she's with the Financial Times, based in Beijing, if you'd like to learn more about this subject and the hard slog of trying to get reparations, uh, I'll put a link to some of her stuff. She's quite an expert on the subject. She was also on the April 7th 2015 Seneca. So I'll put a link to that show on my website as well. Comfort Women and the Struggle for Reparations. Lucy Hornby. A document called Regarding Recruitment of Women for Military Brothels was uncovered in 1991. The official line all the way up till that point had always been that the military was not directly involved in this sordid matter. But come on, it was all their idea. Rather than allow it to happen wantonly, they just institutionalized the rape and torture instead. So the first of these places opened in Nanjing, 1938. After the first ten days of utter terror meted out against the people remaining in Nanjing, the authorities tried to organize things and call for a mass registration of the residents. Henceforth, everyone was required to carry with them this uh, passport of sorts. So this procedure was helpful to the Japanese in smoking out any remaining soldiers or people who had made it to their blacklist. About 160,000 people registered over a period. A lot remained in the shadows and spent the rest of the war dodging the Japanese or got caught. Starting around the second week of January, there began to be a marked difference in the daily velocity of violence being committed on the civilian population. On January 13, 1938, the Zeman's head office told Rabe to wind things down and start heading back to Germany. By the end of the month, the Japanese had given the order to shut down the safety zone, giving the date of February 4th as the evacuation deadline. It's not like this small group of foreigners saved the day or that they were the only valiant ones remaining in Nanjing. The Nanjing safety zone, Nanjing Anquanqu, was just one section of the city. It was just that these people, Rabe, Wilson, Minnie Vautrin, and others, they lived to tell the world what they saw, or at least tried to some extent. They all kept meticulous diaries. One of the foreigners, an American, Reverend John McGee, an Episcopal priest in Nanjing at the time, in the heat of battle went out on the streets trying to you know, assist NRA soldiers who were trying to retreat and escape the killing. Reverend McGee shot 105 minutes of 16-millimeter film of what he saw over the worst days of the killing. This was all gruesome in-your-face, black-and-white footage. Rabe took one of the copies of the film back to Germany with him. American missionary George Ashmore Fitch, head of the YMC in Nanjing and a, and a director of the International Committee of the Nanjing Safety Zone, also snuck a copy of McGee's film out of China and was able to get it seen in the halls of Congress. Needless to say, everyone who saw it was shocked at the cruelty and barbarity the Americans would get their chance soon enough to feel for themselves the searing pain they saw on the faces of these Chinese victims of the Nanjing Massacre. Well, in January, February of 1938, the war was still far from over. There remained seven more years of Japanese occupation in China and all that that meant. In December 1940, if you recall from past CHP episodes, there was the 100 Regiments Offensive. This was an offensive led by Zhu De and Peng De Huai. 400,000 troops of the Communist 8th Route Army against 270,000 Japanese troops. The Communist Army not only killed 20 to 30,000 Japanese soldiers, they destroyed all kinds of critical infrastructure that threw another major wrench into the logistical planning of the Imperial Japanese Army. They were pissed, and rightly so. The Japanese had to come up with all kinds of workarounds to rebuild all these railway lines, telephone lines, bridges, tunnels, and whatnot. Well, the upshot of this was Japan's three-alls policy, a campaign of annihilation against the local populace in North China. Emperor Hirohito personally initialed that order. 
2.7 million people died as a direct and indirect cause of this scorched-earth policy from a Japanese military hell-bent on making a statement about how they felt about being challenged, not to mention how they felt about that 100 regiments offensive. Along with the Nanjing massacre, this is looked at as another of Japan's more vile crimes against the Chinese people. And then rounding out the trifecta of the three worst evils committed during these dark years for China was the Nanasan Ichibutai, known as Unit 731, based in Harbin. It oversaw years of biological and chemical warfare experimentation carried out on mostly captured Chinese and Russian prisoners. General Shiro Ishii was the Joseph Mengele of that operation. More on him in a moment. Anyways, back to the Nanjing Datusha. For Japan, well, everything came crashing down on them one day. Estimates about how many people killed, raped, forced into prostitution, tortured. Eh, the numbers are all over the place in these situations. Yeah, it's hard to keep track. So when the 1946 Tokyo War Crimes trial began on May 3rd, and Japan's Day of Atonement came, justice got meted out. Or did it? Shiro Ishii, who directed the whole operation at Unit 731 in Manchuria, he got immunity after working out a deal with Los Estados Unidos, in which he turned over his trove of data on all the evil and despicable acts committed under his supervision. In return, he got into the bioweapons business working exclusively for Uncle Sam. Japanese General Okamura Yasuji, who led the brutal Three Alls policy to kill all, burn all, loot all, was convicted of war crimes at the Nanjing War Crimes Tribunal in 1948, but Chiang Kai-shek got him off the hook and retained him as one of his military advisors against the communists. As for the rape of Nanking, the matter was addressed at this International Military Tribunal for the Far East. Matsui Iwane, though he had made much effort to atone for what happened under his command after he was relieved in 1938, he had most of the blame heaped on him. He went to the gallows unrepentant and a willing sacrificial lamb, refusing to give up the emperor in any of his testimony. Nakajima Kesago, who led one of the three armies that took Nanjing, he died before justice could be served on him. Yanagawa Hisuke, too, the other general. A heart attack felled him in 1945, so those two avoided their just deserts. The main culprit, perhaps, Prince Asaka, he received immunity thanks to his royal connections with the emperor. He lived on until 1981, and from what I read, got to live out his life enjoying his passion on the golf course, as I mentioned before. Most fingers point to him, but there's no way to tell. Criminals always leave tracks of their evidence. We've seen all those TV shows. But in the case of the Nanjing Massacre, the Japanese were particularly thorough in expunging anything too horrific, including, and perhaps most of all, what happened in Nanjing from December 13, 1937, into January 1938. It was a pretty clean getaway. Of course, there are the diaries of these foreigners, the John McGee film, and of course the testimony of tens of thousands of survivors who have come forward. Many people kept diaries and recorded these events. Not just these foreigners I'm talking about. Japanese soldiers, too. They, too, wrote about what they saw and did. The final statement put out by the court regarding the rape of Nanjing was that it was, quote, either secretly ordered or willfully committed, end quote. Well, anyone could have told you that. Not many people inside Japan were aware of the Nanjing Massacre, nor did they know of the reputation their soldiers had earned through the acts committed against civilians that went way beyond the norm in war. It all came out for the first time during the Tokyo War Crimes Trial. So why did Iris Zhang call the rape of Nanjing the Forgotten Holocaust? It was forgotten due to the historical circumstances of the day. The reality was that, well, despite the enormity of Japan's military crimes and the hunger by all Chinese to seek retribution, geopolitical events were forcing things in a different direction. 
The Western allies were all freaking out at what Stalin began doing as soon as the war ended. Then the Chinese communists and nationalists fought a civil war until 1949. Then the Korean War, followed by China's long isolation from the West, one right after the other. The Cold War was on, and Japan became very, very important to the Americans. And not just the Americans. After the nationalist Chinese government moved over to Taiwan, they too found Japan to be a very important new friend. And when Japan rebounded economically after the war, Jiang was keen to seek trade deals and direct investment. And when things began to thaw in China in the 1970s, the PRC too looked to Japan for economic assistance and investment. So with everyone after the war sort of courting Japan and cultivating them as a key Cold War ally and trade partner, the whole inconvenient truth about the rape of Nanjing, I guess you could say, got swept under the rug. I mean, if you were looking for Japan's cooperation or their investment dollars, I guess bringing up the Nanjing massacre wasn't going to help things. And in the 1960s, revisionists emerged in Japan who began calling for a whitewashing of the events that happened in China and throughout Asia during the war years. And so this whole idea of trying to cover up some of the more sordid actions by Japan's military grew in scope. Into the 1970s, the nationalist right, aided and abetted by public apologists and the silent agreement of others, called for... A rewriting of the history. And in 1982, the Ministry of Education even debated the idea of revising Japanese textbooks. Well, I don't want to get into that whole controversy. The greater point was, as time passed and more stories were told, the matter of Japan's wartime atrocities wouldn't go away. And to exacerbate matters when Japanese leaders... And political figures were confronted with these calls for demonstrations of contrition, full-fledged apologies, and, you know, you know, give a nod to what happened. They didn't do anything. And the visits of Japanese leaders to the Yasukuni Shrine, where 14 of the worst war criminals are commemorated, is the annual flashpoint that causes all this unwanted shine on the rape of Nanking. This has led to more and more Chinese calling for Japan to show unreservedly their sorrow and contrition at having committed these acts. I'm not sure how many remember December 7, 1970, in a ceremony in Warsaw. German Chancellor Willy Brandt spontaneously and very publicly knelt before the monument to the Warsaw Ghetto Heroes. The German Chancellor... Anyone who witnessed that moment knew that was genuine. And people, no matter how they felt, didn't forget that moment. And the words and deeds of Helmut Schmidt, that too. Were the atrocities committed by Germany any worse than those committed by Japan? Oh, but in China's case, there hasn't been that Willy Brandt moment. Not yet, anyway. I read up on some of the work by Honda Katsuichi, who went to China during the 1970s and 80s to... Sure, sure, chill, sure. Seek truth from facts. As soon as he started to move the furniture around and look behind the bushes and write about it, there was a huge backlash in Japan. And he was publicly castigated for daring to go there. This is a very polarizing issue because, well, as a patriotic person, what is more important than your country's face? Its dignity in the world, that it's respected, admired, and that your culture is appreciated, how others look at you. Nobody wants to say or do anything that would catastrophically diminish their country's image. Many people in China, as well as a number of overseas Chinese, feel there still hasn't been sufficient closure to this matter. Because of world events... Events in China following World War II and the complicated politics of Japan, all things combined have prevented something similar to what happened, like in the case of Germany. Anyway, let's wind this down. My main objective was to brief you on the timeline and history of this terrible event from Chinese history. And as I said, it's 80 years ago, this December 2017, a long time. Memories and feelings about this history range from don't know, don't care, to anger and passions as hot as if it happened yesterday. 
Anyway, if you didn't know about this before, I hope these two episodes were informative. Before we call it a day here, let me just finish off with what happened to the living Buddha of Nanjing, John Rabe. Despite his efforts to save the lives of so many Chinese during the worst weeks of the Nanjing Massacre, despite the protection he gave to so many, he didn't have a very happy post-war experience. You see, Germany, too, suffered a similar fate as Japan. Their country was bombed to hell, and the German people also had to endure the unendurable. And while being a Nazi Party member came in handy for Rabe during the Nanjing Massacre... It wasn't such a good thing after the war. When Rabe left China, he vowed to all his Chinese friends and colleagues that once he returned to Germany, he would speak out and tell everyone about what had happened there. On February 23, 1938, Rabe left Nanjing, arriving in Shanghai five days later. Then he left Shanghai for Germany via Manila, Mumbai, and Genoa. Rabe had been gone for a good three decades. He had spent almost his entire career in China. For all his troubles, he was awarded the German Red Cross, and the Republic of China government gave him the Star of the Jade Order, the highest possible honor the government could give to a civilian, which usually meant only for a head of state. As promised, Rabe went wherever he was invited to speak and told his story. He had secreted out a copy of Reverend John McGee's horrific 16mm film, and people were shocked at what they saw and heard. As soon as he was settled, Rabe wrote to Hitler and filed a report on what he had witnessed and also sent McGee's film. A few days later, some goons from the Gestapo showed up at his door and arrested him. Welcome back to Deutschland. Yeah, Rabe may have meant well, but he should have been more politically astute. If these atrocities had taken place in the USA or in France, well, probably no one would have stopped Rabe. But Japan was, in 1938, quite close to Germany, and they were both about to take on the world powers together. So Rabe's life got turned upside down. No less a person than Karl Friedrich von Siemens himself had to vouch for Rabe and get him out of police custody. Rabe was told to stop making speeches, don't show that film anymore, and to lay low and shut the hell up about the Nanking Massacre. He did later receive an official reply from the German authorities, which, you know, in so many words said, you know, thanks for the info, it won't have any impact whatsoever on our Japanese policy. To get him out of town and away from Gestapo scrutiny, perhaps, Siemens sent Rabe to Afghanistan on a mission to help evacuate company employees there. He remained with Siemens throughout the war, which, as we all know, doesn't end well for Germany. When it came to the end, Rabe got picked up by the Soviets, and for the next several years he expended a great amount of effort to defend himself against his past Nazi affiliation. Was he one of the good ones, or one of the bad ones? The post-war years saw Rabe slide into poverty, he wasn't the only one. The rest of the nation, especially in East Germany, suffered right alongside Rabe. Rabe and his wife lived out these years, drifting in and out of starvation, trying to live day by day. Like others in his similar position, he tried to get his Nazi past expunged from his record. It was a long, arduous, and frustrating process. In his diary, Rabe had written, quote, Yesterday, my petition to get denazified was rejected. Though I saved the lives of 250,000 Chinese people as the head of the International Committee of the Nanking Safety Zone, my request was refused because I was, for a short time, the leader of the Nazi party in Nanking, and a man of my intelligence must not have sought membership of this party. I'm going to appeal. If they don't give me any work at Siemens, I don't know what to live on. So I must go on to fight, and I am so tired. At the moment, I am questioned every day by the police. End quote. But finally, on June 7, 1946, Rabe wrote, quote, On June 3rd, I was finally denazified by the Denazification Commission of the British Sector in Charlottenburg. The decision reads, 
despite your having been the deputy local leader in Nanking, and although you did not resign from the Nazi party on your return to Germany, the commission nevertheless decided to grant your appeal on the basis of your successful humanitarian work in China. End quote. Rabe was relieved, to say the least. A lot of Germans in Rabe's position tried like crazy to remove the Nazi taint from their past record. Somehow, in 1948, news of Rabe's plight reached China. At once, those who remembered what he had done mobilized to help him in this desperate hour. The mayor of Nanjing flew to Switzerland to meet him, bringing money, care packages, food, and whatnot. I mean, by that time, Rabe and his wife were living on acorn soup. Even Song Mei Ling, when she heard, offered her assistance. John Rabe died of a stroke on June 5, 1950. He left behind 2,000 pages of documents and diaries regarding the Nanjing Massacre. He remained a Siemens employee until his dying day. He gave refuge to a quarter million people during those terrifying times covered in this episode. We don't know how many lives he personally saved or spared from unimaginable physical and mental trauma, but he certainly earned the sobriquet of, as Iris Zhang called him, China's Schindler. Okay, I'm going on a bit of a hiatus, maybe two or three months till the next episode. Got some stuff going on. That's going to slow down the production rate here at the CHP. We'll see. Again, let me suggest, for further reading, The Rape of Nanking, The Forgotten Holocaust of World War II. This was written by the late Iris Zhang, who sadly died by her own hand in November 2003. I dedicate this two-part series to her memory. The book had a lot of critics, but it did put a lot of shine on the topic. I recommend also the 2007 film Nanking, which borrowed heavily from Iris Zhang's book, Directed by Bill Gutentag and Dan Sturman, my main man, love the sky, Woody Harrelson, in the role of Dr. Robert Wilson, Mariel Hemingway as Minnie Vautrin, and Jurgen Proknov as John Rabe. The movie was produced by none other than Washington, D.C. sports team owner extraordinaire Ted Leonsis. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off, as usual, from the town of Los Angeles, California. Join me next time, whenever that may be for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Take care, everyone.